This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to Triple R's Radiotherapy Program. I'm your host this week, Dr. Anabolics. Well, this week, Australia watched the great debate between the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition, arguing about health policy and many other things. Australia reacted by yawning very loudly, shaking its head slowly and reaching for the remote. Well, today I have Dr SK and Dr Sigmund McZiff in the studio with me, along with a couple of Ripper guests. And when our conversation gets started and the questions go flying between them, there won't be a pre-prepared answer to be heard. That's right, none of our discussion or our answers has been focus grouped or party tested. And so you may even get the answer to the actual question you asked someone and not the answer to another question one of our minders felt sure was a very much more important question. We don't even have minders and we're far too lazy to prepare much beforehand. Just as well we're not standing for electoral office, elected office for the next two, three years but just sitting in the Triple R studio for the next hour to bring you some juicy medical and mental health tidbits, hilarious unscripted banter and some guests who actually know what they're talking about and can do it without a teleprompter. Today we're going to talk to, they're going to talk to us about childhood language and literacy problems, outreach, drug safety and harm reduction and what happened at the huge UN drug summit recently. We're going to find out why orange is the new black and how stalking is depicted on TV. All this and much more when we return. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Well, hello everybody. McZiff, how are you? Look, I'm very well. I'm very well. I'm a bit disappointed. I was sad this morning. One of the, one of the world's greatest Scotsmen, Muhammad Ali, passed away. <laughs> and uh, um, he... Uh, that's a that's a terrible loss. Mm. Terrible, terrible. A man, uh, civil rights. Uh, I mean, interesting that a fellow could uh, be a, a boxer, <coughs> pummeling the brains out of others, and uh, and then become uh, a, a, a sort of a, a bastion of uh, of human rights and civil rights. It's extraordinary. Um, but uh, yeah, a very sad loss, and and the devastating effects of uh, of, of Parkinson's on the brain. Do you uh, think it was uh, trauma trauma induced? Brain Interesting. Damage? There was a there was a grab of uh, Ali being interviewed by um, I can't quite remember who it was, but uh, when asked whether he uh, in fact thought that the pugilism, the boxing, was influential in the development of his uh, Parkinson's, and he said that uh, there were 1.4 million people who had Parkinson's who weren't boxers. Um, there are pathological differences, I think, uh, in the the. the the trauma-induced type of Parkinson's uh, and the uh, and the non-trauma-based Parkinson's, and uh, I guess uh, post-mortem studies will reveal all. Absolutely, uh, yes. I, I don't think Michael J. Fox's Parkinson's is trauma-induced, unless you count many too many seasons of Family Ties. But, uh... <laughs> well, I guess as you say, we'll, we'll find out. Yeah. Mm. And in the studio with us, we've got Dr. Tanya Seri, who's going to talk to us a little bit later about literacy. Hello, Tanya. And we're going to start this morning by meeting uh, Penny Hill. Hello, Penny. How Hello. are you? Good, thank you. Thank you for having me here oh, this morning. Thank you so much for coming in. Now, Penny and I um, both met when we were working at the Homey Shop. We've just, uh, Homey guys have mm-hmm. been in here before, of course, on several occasions. And Homey's and uh, Penny's a volunteer at the Homey Shop. Yeah. And I found out that Penny had a fascinating uh, background, a fascinating job. You're actually working with an, a needle syringe program, aren't you, in the eastern suburbs overnight? Yeah, you go out and so help people? I work in uh, various NSP services throughout Melbourne. I'm from Sydney originally, so I used to work in outreach and different services there. 
Um, yeah, so I kind of based in the harm reduction se- sector, but also working in the drug policy sector as well and setting up an organisation um, called Students for Sensible Drug Policy, um, which is a student-led organisation, an international organisation that is now coming to Australia. We're setting up at Deakin University, or we are set up at Deakin University um, and Melbourne University as well and been contacted by students from all over Australia, different universities in almost every state now, um, wanting to set up different clubs to kind of raise a, a platform for the voice of young people to speak about drug policy. Well, when you say Students for a Sensible Drug Policy, or SSDP, what, what in your mind would be a sensible drug policy platform? What would, where does um, drug policy, I believe, would be most sensible mm. based in a, a public health um, approach um, and human rights-based a- approach. I recently went along to the... Um, UNGAS special session on on drugs in New York, which was the UN General Assembly special session on the world drug problem for 2016, um, where there was a definite shift um, by the UN or by different countries involved with the UN to for for drug policy to be kind of based more in a public health um, and human rights rights approach. So the last General Assembly held in 1998 was um, titled the UN or something along the lines of a drug-free world. So um, different delegations and different countries have um, definitely shifted in the last kind of 20 years to kind of recognise that you can't just have a a drug-free world. Well, most countries have have shifted like that and kind of recognising different public health and harm reduction-based approaches. Um, So I was lucky enough to go along to um, the Commission of Narcotic Drugs in the UN Office of Drugs and Crime um, prior to this special session in April um, to discuss how human rights um, aren't upheld by international drug conventions um, where if if drug policy shifted to be more along the lines of public health then we would be um, uh, seeing much less harm from from drug policies. The the way it stands at the moment is drug policy seems to cause more harm than the drugs themselves. Well that's interesting you said because I guess what you're talking about there is all the harms that are caused by the incarceration process, mm-hmm. the, you know, the jailing, the you know, the um, the crime, all the money that's spent yeah. on the crime and, the and punishment. And ongoing effects, along with um, you know, incarcerating people's mothers and family members, and 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 all different kind of flow-on effects from from drug policies and um, incarcerating people and prohibition and and things like that uh, seem to be causing a lot. A lot of well, they are causing a lot of harm, but it seems to even be kind of trumping the harms coming from the drugs themselves. Well, you and I have done a lot of um, talking and a little bit of writing about um, mm. <laughs> incarceration caused by drug use, and we know that the numbers have gone uh, through the roof in Australia for numbers of people in jail because of drug-related crime. Mm-hmm. Is that one of the big harms you see as coming from our current policy? Uh, just getting people caught up in the uh, yeah. young, young men, young men particularly, especially um, yeah, yeah, young people, young men. Like you say, young men in particular, um, there's uh, a lot of harms coming um, from having young people going into jail in the first place. There's a lot of higher risk of hepatitis C and and all other health-related harms, but also kind of the the flow-on effects and recidivism rates and people going back into jail. So um, we... uh, Dr. Anabolix and I have um, recently written a little article we're hoping to be published in uh, a couple of media places around Melbourne, but um, that was kind of calling for um, public awareness of of the the harms that come from having a young person or any person 
being put into jail for drug-related offences um, and kind of calling out no matter how, how good the the jail or the the services that you're putting somebody into, um, the risks of... Um, um, harm from from not having them in jail in the first place can be dramatically re- reduced. And of course they can still obtain drugs in jails in Australia, we know that very, yeah. very clearly. Now you said you, you, one of your daytime jobs, your uh, your paid mm-hmm. jobs, is you go out at, uh, in the eastern suburbs and sometimes at night on the um, mm-hmm. is it a truck or a bus? What do you go out on at night? It's just a car, it's a car? Um, right. an unmarked car, so right. nobody would know to, to look for it even if you... If and, you and, and you make connection with people who are on the street, uh, sex workers and drug uh, injecting drug users, and what, how does that play out? How do you um, help them reduce the harms that are coming to them from their drug use? So we um, offer sterile injecting equipment and safe sex equipment um, to people. It's actually not um, an outreach service that kind of um, different services operate around Melbourne that kind of drive around different parts, uh, different suburbs and streets but um, the predominant, prominent, predominantly outreach services um, are actually call-in service so people call out to us and we go out um, to visit them to deliver the equipment and also to take away their used equipment which uh, reduce, reduces the public health risk of, risk of people uh, disposing of injecting equipment unsafely and and what, what's your answer to the uh, criticism we sometimes hear from some sectors that say well you're encouraging drug use you're giving people clean needles you're just encouraging drug use what what do you say to those people because that's a very potent mm. and a very politically powerful argument that we hear sometimes have you got an have you got a, a, a sense of how you combat that that um concern so people no one would call an outreach service um you know, to try and find drugs. Anybody that's calling the service is already planning to inject these drugs. So um, the whole point is that we're providing sterile injecting equipment. Um, There's been multiple studies worldwide that that show that outreach and NSP programs do not actually promote people taking drugs. It's actually... um, uh, ends up being more of a if we if we're going out and develop a good relationship with somebody that might not access a, any other health service, we're actually building up um, a kind of uh, rapport and relationship with these people, um, and they are actually more likely if they're ready and willing to um, stop using drugs or decrease the amount of drugs or type of drugs they're using, um, they're more likely to actually call us for support. So it actually um, reduces the amount of people using drugs. So it actually turns that kind of argument right on its head. Fantastic. And so they're, they're calling you and, they're, and they're, you, you, you go out to them and you give them advice and ways of reducing the harm because I guess one of the things that struck me um, working in this sector which I, I didn't know before was and a lot of police have said the same thing to me is mm. that the, a lot of the people who get caught up in their, their late teens early 20s in the drug um, sector will survive most the great majority will survive and will use recreationally mm-hmm. by far the biggest percentage of people who are using drugs will use recreationally and will survive that's a really important thing to remember and that if the main thing is to get those people through to their late 20s and 30s when they usually stop using anyway mm. without hepatitis, without HIV, without running into crime, you know, without being killed on the street because they've used too much and they haven't known how much to use. Is that what you see too, that people are using recreationally sometimes and just simply need to be kept safe? Yeah, that's definitely, that's kind of the whole point of, of harm reduction as well, to reduce any kind of risks and harms um, involved with people using drugs. But... Um, um, 
that's definitely what we see. We see a lot of people dependent on certain drugs, but also recreational use and a lot of people that don't actually realise the harms that they're at, at risk of. So we can kind of educate and promote different health services and we can also do referrals to different welfare services and housing and other things as well. So it's kind of a really good... Um, way to engage with any member of the community. And with your uh, new thing you've set up, uh, Students for a support, uh, Sensible Drug Policy, mm-hmm. the one that you've brought to Australia, are you finding young people in uh, tertiary institutions, are they keen to get involved on this, in mm-hmm. this uh, argument and this um, it, the group that you've set up? Yeah, I'm finding um, young people and students are really keen to get involved. Um, it's quite hard um, as a young adult to kind of feel where you fit in, in in a community and especially to voice your, your voice in public, especially speaking about drugs which are, which are illegal and I'm finding a lot of um, young people are coming up to me saying oh it's about time something uh, like, like this is happening, I really kind of want to raise my voice but I'm not sure if I'm allowed to, like is it confidential do I have to, you know, say my name do I have to sign up mm. for a certain thing mm. and absolutely no people don't need to do that but also we're finding um, young people really want to take action and um, kind of provide a uh, um, safer envir- environment for their friends and, and family members who might be um, recreationally using drugs as well. So it's been really interesting because people have... Uh, I'm finding young people are f- actually finding a place to have their voice. Um, and the, the point of Students for Sensible Drug Policy is to kind of provide that platform where um, people can engage in, in drug policy discussions on a, on a campus level with their y- university health services and, mm. and academic kind of um, staff oh, and everybody yep. on campus, but also in a local and then state level and national level with their... Um, election coming up and also I was lucky enough to go and um, represent um, Australian youth at at the UN so uh, we're taking it to an international level as well and it's kind of been a really good platform (coughs) to um, already engage like we've had students from Melbourne University wanting to um, um, you know write the thesis on drug education and different things like thinking oh how do I find more people interested in in this topic as well and we've you know joined them up with people from Curtin University and it's become a really good network already and we've only been around for a couple of months. Fantastic. Penny, I was wondering, we talked before about the, the link between uh, drug use and uh, and the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. The Dandenong uh, Drug Court uh, as a model for uh, for dealing with people who, who uh, run into trouble with the law, what are your thoughts about how that has gone and uh, the generalization, uh, generalizability of, uh, of using that approach? Um, personally, I... I don't know too much specifically about the Dandenong Drug Court. Um, I like the idea of a drug court, um, but, and yeah, like you say, the generalizability and kind of almost, um, I don't want to say normalization, but kind of recognition that we need a kind of different um, approach to to people coming through the criminal justice system for drug-related offenses. Um, But I still don't think it um, really... I don't know, is is uh, ac- um, adequate enough to kind of deal with people keeping on coming through the system. I do, like I said, I'm not good with specifics on Dandenong Drug, drug Court, but I think they, um, you have to have been through the system, the regular system, multiple times before you can even be kind of um, allowed to 
go see the drug well, court? Well, you've, you've already been caught up if you're there. Yeah. They have to, I think that's right. But um, I, I recently uh, I did do, I have a bit of a look at this and there was an independent review. I think it was finished last year. And I'm, I'm going to say Deloitte, but I could be wrong. It could mm-hmm. be somebody I'm, I, should, I can't remember. It was an independent review down on the court which uh, came back with a, with an extremely positive uh, um, report saying that um, uh, uh, recidivism mm. and appearances were reduced in the people who'd been through the court. So there is some there is some pretty good independent evidence now that there's, <coughs> they're having an impact on at least reducing the number of people. But, uh, you know, as you say, it's, it hasn't been spread across the state, has it? So it's, it's, yeah, it's and very small it's funding be, and yeah. it's very hard to get funding for those things. Penny, could you clarify for us uh, just the range of offences that are considered to be drug-related? I mean, I can imagine that things like possession and trafficking and, you know, conducting a burglary to obtain money for drugs could be conceptualised as drug-related. Do you, do you count under that uh, concept people who might uh, commit an assault whilst intoxicated with drugs? Is, is that considered a drug-related defence? Uh, offence? Um, I'm not actually sure, to be honest. Um, I imagine it... It would be, but I don't think it would be something that would make someone go through the drug court. I think it would be an, pre- predominantly an assault. But charge. I think it would be one of those things that if you had sensible drug policy then and you were putting your money in prevention rather than uh, incarceration, you would hopefully pick up some of those guys, wouldn't you? It'd be yeah. <laughs> before, they, before they're running and amok I mean, and building people up. People aren't kind of led to commit crimes to, to make money to get more drugs if you, mm. if you kind of decriminalise or, you know, have, have different options for... Um, I imagine that what, what uh, a community would look like post-decriminalisation in terms of the illegal drug trade is what it looks like now in terms of alcohol. There would mm. be some people who use too much, some people who use socially and some people who don't use anything at all and we wouldn't have people breaking into houses to get money for a six-pack. Yeah, It wouldn't be happening. It's, we've already got a model. We've already tried prohibition with one drug and it had terrible criminal consequences and, ter- and, and everyone agreed it was st- why we can't agree that decriminalisation couldn't be a possibility at least is mm, not, not clear to me. To, yeah. We've got that in front of us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there's different harm reduction and kind of health promotion things. Like just look at tobacco in the last maybe 20 yes, years. Like exactly. The amount of harm reduction and kind of policies and programs that have come about to decrease the amount of people using tobacco has just been exactly. incredible. Well, I think you're doing a fantastic job. Now, listen, you've also got an f- interesting day coming up. Called, yeah. called, what's the name of your day? Uh, support, support Don't Punish Day is coming up. It's actually a, a worldwide, uh, a global advocacy day um, that's on June 26th. Um, but we're uh, holding a, an event in Melbourne um, in Nicholson Street Mall in Footscray. Um, support Don't Punish Day is a global advocacy campaign calling for better drug policies that um, prioritise public health and human rights. Um, We're holding an event, like I said, in Footscray um, to kind of raise public awareness of um, drug policies and um, there's different ways you can get involved with a campaign. There's an international photo photo campaign where you can take like a a photo with a logo and and post it on the website. The hashtag is um, hashtag support don't punish. Um, Also you can come come down to Nicholson Street Mall in Footscray. Um, We've got a mural being painted on the wall. We've got a photo booth. We'll have sausage sizzle. We've got a bunch of speakers. Um, I can put maybe the link on the 
the website for radiotherapy. I'm not sure. Yes, how we it can works. do that. Yep. Um, also, you can uh, check out the event at our website, which is ssdp.org.au, and be right on the front page there. So that's Student for Sensible Drug Policy, ssdp.org.au. That's fantastic. And I think we're, when we talk to uh, Tanya in a minute, she's going to talk to us about uh, literacy and language problems and illiteracy. And, and, and as we mentioned in the groom room before, we're going to hear how some of those those early problems mm. can lead down the pathway to incarceration and other problems and crime and drug use. So it's going to be interesting to see how that all links in too. So thanks so much for coming in. Thank and, you. Are you, would you like to stay the rest of the show? You're most welcome to if yeah, you'd like to. Brilliant. I'm sure you'll have something <laughs> else to say. So, okay, well, thank you so much for that. And uh, if people want to get involved, go to the Support Don't Punish Day in uh, Nicholson Street, Footscray, and go to the SSDP mm. website. Yeah, so Saturday, 25th of June. Brilliant. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. This morning we've got uh, Dr Tanya Seri, who's a senior lecturer in uh, the discipline of speech pathology at La Trobe University. And uh, Tanya's come in this morning. She's going to talk a bit about uh, language and learning difficulties. So welcome and thank you very much for coming in. Oh, thank you very much for having me. And now... I wonder if we could just start just to flesh out the area. Um, reading is something that most of us take for granted, and yet we don't really all understand how it happens. So what is reading, and how, do, how does it develop in all of us? Okay, well, as a disclaimer at the start, that some of what I say may be um, a bit controversial because there's a number of theories around reading and what's gone on in the last 40 or so years is really called the Great Debate or the Reading Wars. So I'm going to talk from my perspective, which is... Um, I would argue strongly evidence-based um, and say that reading doesn't develop, that reading is an acquired skill that piggybacks off strong um, precursor skills around being a competent user of language and having a set of um, precursor or what we call emergent literacy skills that are absolutely necessary uh, absolutely necessary for being ready to learn to read. So we call we think of reading as a learned skill that piggybacks off a set of precursor skills and we know that children that don't arrive at school with those strong precursor skills really don't catch up. So back to your first question, what is reading? Reading is a, um, an, a learned skill that um, is essentially about decoding squiggles on a page. If no one was taught to read, there'd just be a lot of squiggles around the pa- um, look at us that we don't understand. Like when I look at Japanese, for example, that's a lot of squiggles because I don't know how to read or decode that those symbols. So reading itself is really a combination of being able to decode those squiggles so that we can make sense of the words on the page and applying our knowledge of language, as in language comprehension, to make sense of what is written there. So it's a it's a combination, a product really, of being able to decode and to have strong oral language comprehension to make sense of what's written. So it's essentially a language-based skill. So, so can you just say oral language comprehension, what, what does that actually mean? Uh, well, com- comprehension is our ability to understand. So having strong grammatical knowledge, having a wide vocabulary, being able to use language in all its purposes, uh, being able to construct um, and follow narratives, so stories, beginning, middle, end. So it's, it's really, comprehension is really just code for being able to understand. So, so just g- going back one step, so in all languages, in all of the thousands of languages that exist uh, uh, on our planet, are there commonalities in terms of that actual process of, of how we decode the, the squiggles? I can really only comment 
based on my knowledge, about alphabetic languages, of which English is one, and there are many that we know about. Um, there are pic- um, pictographs, as in some of the Asian languages, so I can't comment on that because often they're codes f- uh, for whole phrases as opposed to single letters. Uh, but for alphabetic languages, which are the vast majority, the answer, short answer is yes. Okay, so we know... Th- so, so reading... Um, like a lot of developmental skills, um, th- you, there are critical phases that people have to, uh, children have to get through to to acquire particular skills. Um, what 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 do kids have to go through to be able to to learn how to read? Uh, a lot of very important um, stages occur in the years prior to school, and that's not under the control of the child, but very much at the um, mercy of the environment that the child is raised in. So what we know is really important is that a child is raised in a highly verbal environment and also a highly literate environment, so opportunities to have shared book reading experiences with parents, carers, um, uh, having lots of exposure to language models. Um, There's a very famous study that's now quite old, I think it was done in 1985 by Hart and Risley, and they looked at uh, families, uh, parents and children of various, from various different socioeconomic groups, and children of um, families in low socioeconomic groups were hearing vastly fewer words than children from families that came from greater social advantage. So we know that there is a social gradient, which is highly unfair, but it's just the reality at the moment. Um, But but having families that it's not around um, education levels, it's really just about exposure and being in language-rich environments where communication is highly valued. Literally just having books on the shelf is a really good prognostic or protective factor for being ready to learn to read at school. So it's not about being able to actually read. I think many parents of young children get very hooked up on children being able to read before school. Reading will be um, learned very well if children are well equipped in being very verbal and very aware of print, print awareness, things like how books work, how to turn a page, what's the beginning, middle and end of a story, um, having a, a broad vocabulary, having all the precursor language and pre-literacy skills. So, so we, know, we know that um, reading will happen if the environment is there and if the, the, there are the requisite cognitive skills, but we, we hear a huge amount about reading difficulty, about kids who have problems with reading. Is that the same as dyslexia? What is dyslexia? Mm, Dyslexia is a controversial term. I'll just, again, make a disclaimer here that I personally do really like the term dyslexia, but many of my colleagues, whom I have great respect for, don't really like the term. It's been very... um, used and um, in different contexts, which is why it's controversial. But essentially the dis is meaning it's a problem and lexia is from the root word of word. Um, Technically it means a difficulty processing the letters on the page, so difficulty with the decoding. Um, But it's used more broadly just to signify a child who doesn't make the expected progress learning to read. Um, so many people, particularly in Australia and the Southern Hemisphere, New Zealand, I know is the same. Many people have a bit of an aversion, aversion to using the term and they'll use terms like specific reading difficulty and so forth. But essentially it's um, applied to a child who doesn't make the expected progress learning to read often, not always, but often in the absence of any factor um, that you might expect 
a child to have difficulty. So adequate IQ, adequate development in all other aspects, happy, thriving child who just struggles to learn to read. And it's considered to be a processing difficulty, a difficulty, um, it's called phonological processing, which is a bit of a mouthful, but essentially difficulties processing um, sounds and the relationships they have with letters. Um, now that has a snowball effect because at the very start, a child will struggle as all their, their peers are learning the different letters and how to put them together. This, these children will be slower to do so. And then there's an absolute flow on effect because if you're not decoding the words, you're not going to be able to, to make sense of the text. So in the early years when there's a lot of attention on learning to read, these children will already be slower and children are very quick to pick up on when their peers are doing well mm. and they're not. Mm. But then the education focuses mid-primary school from reading um, not learning to read, but reading to learn. And this is often when things really go belly up for these children because they... And, and is there... Um, and before I get... I want to I ask you about remediation and what and what works. But is there a gender... Is there much of a gender difference? We, we hear a lot about boys who are struggling with the process of reading and, uh, uh, and who, who fall behind. Um, uh, is, is that a real issue? It's a very interesting question because um, there's a lot of... Um, a belief out there that more boys have difficulty with reading than girls and if you go to many classrooms and ask the teachers um, who's having difficulty I can be pretty confident that a lot of teachers will say oh, there's more boys than girls the research evidence tells us that it's pretty 50-50 and that boys just tend to act out I know I'm being very gender stereotypical here so please excuse me but uh, the boys will tend to act out and become the class clown or naughty and so forth where the girls who are struggling in the same way will often retreat to the back corner so the research evidence is becoming clearer and clearer that it's fairly 50 50 uh, as opposed to what many people just overtly see and that teachers have to deal with what's happening in front of them and i guess the ones that make a lot more noise get noticed more okay so can I mean, a critical thing is remediation. We hear all about reading recovery and uh, other types of intervention. What works? It's very clear what works. Unfortunately, it's not always being implemented as it should be, but what works is... Uh, Early intervention is absolutely what works, but um, we believe that there is a lot that can be done prior to early intervention, I guess similar to what Penny was talking about in terms of prevention promotion, in making sure that children are very well equipped <coughs> before they go to school, and that is not always the case. But I'll focus on the intervention side now. So many um, places have adopted what could be called as a wait-to-fail approach when uh, things have already started to go belly up for a particular child. Um, we, we know that what works is very early intervention as soon as difficulties are apparent to um, ex provide that child with accelerated um, intervention to bring them up to the uh, level of their peers. The in, um, intervention needs to be intensive and that means often daily for a block of times, so, uh, daily for 10 weeks, 20 weeks, 20 minutes, half an hour a day. It needs to be supported by um, families at home as well and it needs to be very explicit. So helping the child, literally just teaching the child to decode in the way that all their peers are doing Doing, but these, for some reason these children just haven't got onto it. It hasn't come so easily for them. So it needs to be early, it needs to be intensive and it needs to be very explicit. And who should be delivering it? 
Well, uh, in the very early phase, um, teachers, if they have capacity or support staff, there's absolutely no... We have good evidence that um, this early phase of intervention can be delivered by volunteers as well, as long as they're supported and mentored. So it can be small um, breakout sessions in a classroom and can be delivered by um, teachers, uh, can be delivered in small groups, so it's quite cost-effective. Um, but then the children that still don't respond to that level of intervention may need to go on and have more intensive one-on-one -on -one intervention with maybe um, a literacy specialist, a speech pathologist, anyone who's got good training. Um, but it certainly can be delivered in the early phases quite um, uh, smoothly without making the child feel too different to their peers. Danielle, when you, I hear you say what how intensive it needs to be, I, I can't help but thinking how difficult some kids have it when there's multi-generational illiteracy sometimes and or you know parents who are completely distracted, depressed, whatever. It must You must come across in your work, I guess, uh, p stories about kids who've just got almost no pre-literacy skills being given to them at, at home before they even hit school. I mean, how do you do you help the parents as well in those situations? How do you attack that sort of multi generational problem? Uh, absolutely, it comes through the home experiences, and by home I mean what goes anything that goes on before school. So we mm -hmm. believe that a lot can be done at um, uh, preschool educational yep. settings as well. So really equipping early childhood educators to be very mindful of what children need as well. The reality is that there will be some homes where what happens, what you described, does happen. Mm -hmm. We also know that um, dyslexia and related difficulties um, there is a genetic link as well. So it's a risk factor to mm -hmm. have a dyslexic parent. There's a, quite a significantly increased chance of having a child with dyslexia. So there is the genetic component as well as the social components as well. So there's a lot of education that needs to be done and I, my personal bent is really about prevention and promotion mm -hmm. so that we really just have the children that were always going to have difficulty receiving the intervention as opposed to a, a large chunk of children who really just needed a bit of an extra push, mm -hmm. so to speak, also needing to be seen at school. And what do we know about the long-term outcome for kids who are poor readers and where remediation has, has not worked? Um, there's a lot of um, good evidence that um, the outcomes for children who don't make a good start to reading, first of all, they have ongoing... It's very likely they will have ongoing academic difficulties because liter literacy is so fundamental to everything that occurs in an academic world. And consequently, there are very poor psychosocial vocational outcomes reported for a vast majority of children. My colleague um, Professor Pam Snow from La Trobe University has done a lot of research looking at the relationship between um, incarceration or um, young, ad young adults, adolescents and adults who enter the youth justice system and um, people with poor oral language and difficulties with literacy are vastly overrepresented in this group as well. So again, whilst not everyone is going to end up with significant psychosocial difficulties, there's the risks um, because of poor pro-social development that comes from being a, a verbal and illiterate person, um, they're so at a, such a disadvantage. So the consequences are much more about maybe not being great at school, as often is the case. And just finally, before we wrap up, um, is it too late to intervene. I mean, we hear about uh, uh, adults who have struggled with uh, with literacy all their lives. Uh, we know that they're vocationally compromised uh, and overrepresented in the criminal justice system, as you say. But is it too late to intervene? Is it ever too late? 
Uh, look, it's never too late, um, but it's certainly far more ideal to intervene as early as possible. And if what should be done? I mean, if uh, uh, if there's anybody out there who um, uh, is adult and who has literacy, r- reading and writing difficulties, uh, what should they do? Where should they go? I have to um, acknowledge that it's not really my area of expertise, but I know that um, some TAFE colleges run some excellent programs for adult illiteracy. So that would be my suggestion of first port of call. Okay, well, thank you very much. That was uh, fascinating to hear about uh, an area that uh, we don't really talk about terribly much in here, mm-hmm. but it's uh, it makes an enormous contribution to, I think, to a lot of the mental health difficulties that we encounter so in a clinical setting. So, mm-hmm. Tanya, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank Thank you. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. And we're going to hear from Dr SK now. Now, Dr SK, you've been watching a thing which has divided a bit of opinion around here. Some people love oranges and new black and some people don't. And you've been, you've been a bit hooked and you think it tells us something about stalking. Yeah, look, I have become hooked on Orange is the New Black. I'm about uh, a third of the way through the second season. It was interesting to see how this show polarised opinion when we were discussing in the green room outside. I mean, I thought you would have been a fan of shows set in a woman's prison. Anabolic, surely. I don't know why you would have thought that, but I've never watched it, actually. I have, I'm not polarised because I've never seen it. You tell me, is it good? Should I watch it? Look, uh, I, th- I think it's worth a look. And I know McZip wasn't a great fan either, but, uh, you know, in addition to the sort of familiar tropes that you might expect from a show set in a woman's prison, you know, there's episodes of violence and a Apparently there's lesbianism rampant in the place. I think what differentiates it from a crop of prison dramas is the, the humanity with which it tells the stories of some of the inmates, particularly the backstories of some minor characters who, if you took them on face value as they're depicted in the show, might be just seen as hardened criminals. But the backstories really flesh these characters out and show that they are uh, women by and large who have been uh, victims of circumstance or or misfortune and and misadventure. And it was through watching uh, an episode in season two just recently that... uh, the the concept of stalking arose. Uh, there's a, a character who's been present throughout the series whose name is Lorna, and she's presented really as a, a quite a sweet, innocent sort of character. And as a viewer, you're, you're wondering why this poor lady could possibly imprison be in prison. She seems compassionate. She seems harmless. She's one of the uh, inmate trustees, you know, she's been given responsibilities that indicate that the warders view her as low risk. One of her jobs, for example, is driving uh, inmates to appointments outside of the prison in a prison van, and she's sort of left unattended to do this whilst uh, business goes on. So she's seen as a low-risk prisoner. And throughout the first season, you, you don't really get an understanding of what she's doing there, but uh, I think it's in episode three of season two, her backstory is told and it appears that she's a stalker. Uh, Throughout season one, when when you see her, she makes reference to her fiancé called Christopher, and she talks about her plans when she gets out of prison to to reunite with Christopher and and marry him. And there's one one episode where she receives a phone call from a friend who tells us that uh, Christopher has jilted her and is, is marrying another woman and is engaged, and she's really distraught when she does this. So in the episode that deals with Lorna's backstory, she is in charge of the prison van and she's taking another uh, inmate out to a chemotherapy appointment. And whilst she's waiting outside the hospital for chemotherapy to be complete, she takes it upon herself to go to Christopher's house. 
She breaks in. She throws a garden gnome through his front window and unlocks the door. She goes through his closets. She finds, amongst other things, a bridal veil uh, in one of the closets. She takes this down, puts it on, and the very next shot we see her taking a relaxing bath wearing the bridal veil in Christopher's bathroom. Uh, then he comes home, she hears noises that he's arrived home and she, she realises that she's going to get caught so she does a runner out the bathroom window and gets back in the van and to the hospital in time to, uh, to avoid consequences. But it's at this point that uh, her backstory is revealed and we learn that she's actually been imprisoned for uh, <laughs> leaving threatening messages for Christopher uh, who apparently declined to to have a second date with her. She'd only been out on one date with this guy, but she stalked him after the single date, threatened him, and ultimately was imprisoned for placing a, or trying to place a bomb in the car of his actual girlfriend at that time. So quite a dangerous or potentially dangerous crime. So what uh, what sort of motivations underlie stalking behaviours? Believe it or not, uh, a Melbourne forensic psychiatrist, Paul Mullen, has been at the forefront of uh, this field and he's gone as far as to categorise uh, five types of stalker uh, and that's become received in the forensic psychiatry literature. So we're going to go through the, the proposed five types of stalking behaviour this morning and try and come to an understanding of which classification Lorna best fits into. The first type of stalker is referred to by Mullen as the predatory stalker. And this person identifies his victim. They're almost invariably male, but identifies his victim, which is usually a female, as a potential target, usually for sexual assault. And the predatory stalking behaviour can run the gamut from simply voyeuristic behaviour, the peeping Tom sort of stalking behaviour, right through to following and tracking somebody's detailed movements, but largely with the intent of then using that information to commit a crime. And it's usually a, a sexual crime. So these sort of stalkers enjoy the sense of power and control that they get from targeting this unsuspecting victim. A second type of stalker and one which uh, we might be more familiar with from a psychiatric perspective is the resentful stalker. And resentful stalking arises when the stalker feels that in somehow they've been mistreated or subject to an injustice by the person that they go on to stalk. The victims are actually usually strangers to, uh, to the person who has this belief. They may have a, a, a fleeting acquaintance, but they're often strangers. But they're seen by the perpetrator as having mistreated the stalker in some way. And we see these people in clinical samples because often there's a delusional belief, you know, a frankly psychotic belief that's uh, developed that a specific person uh, has uh, greatly wronged the, uh, the stalker in some way. So the behaviour is sort of seen as some sort of payback for, for the victim, for their uh, imagined wrongs, and the, the, the initial motivation for stalking to commence is usually some form of desire for revenge or to even the score for this wrongdoing that has been done. The stalking is then sort of maintained again through the sense of power and control that this gives the perpetrator. And we've seen examples of, uh, of this sort of stalking behaviour in, in other films, for example. I think the Travis Bickle character in Taxi Driver, for example. You know, uh, that character obviously, to my eyes, had a paranoid schizophrenic type illness and targeted a politician to 
uh, ultimately assassinate him and, and even the score for, for perceived mistreatment. Well, sadly, we've seen it in real life in Australia too. <coughs> a couple of people been, who have been killed by people who fall into this group. In fact, a very prominent psychiatrist was killed by a person who fell into that group. Absolutely, in South Australia. And I believe there's been radio presenters as well who've been the, uh, the target of uh, <laughs> paranoid stalking behaviour also. I love everyone. <laughs> Don't we all? Everyone, everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> the next type of stalker I'd like to, uh, to discuss is the, the intimacy-seeking stalker. And again, this can, can be uh, seen in, in psychiatric populations. Uh, a certain amount of stalkers commence their behaviour because they're basically lonely, they lack a close confidant, and they're seeking somebody to whom they can attach their affections with the view of developing a relationship uh, with that person. And again, we see frequently, but not invariably, these intimacy-seeking stalkers' behaviour being fuelled by particular types of mental illness, which can involve, again, delusional beliefs about the victim, such as the belief that they're already in a relationship, even though none exists. And this might tangentially apply to Lorna. I mean, she still seemed to believe that Chris was her fiancé, for example. But she was aware of the fact that... Uh other people would not see things this way. You know, she didn't attempt to make contact with Chris while she was on the run uh, during her prison van escapade. And indeed, when he came home, she realised that there would be consequences if she stuck around and uh, met with him. So she, she did a runner. So arguably not necessarily a delusional type of belief, though you, you might argue that some delusional people have uh, what's referred to clinically as double-entry bookkeeping. You know, they will voice their beliefs on the one hand, but they will act in a manner that suggests that they know at some level that what they're doing is, uh, is incorrect. So these sort of delusional beliefs uh, are referred to as erotomanic beliefs. And again, there's certain examples in film of, uh, of erotomania where people develop a, a, an erotic attraction, usually to a person who is of much higher status. Indeed, uh, celebrity stalkers uh, will often tend to be uh, erotomanically influenced. So that's a delusional disorder. It's not necessarily a, a disorder uh, of schizophrenia, but where there's a single isolated belief that drives somebody's behaviour and leads them to believe in uh, to behave in ways which are unacceptable was towards the Was that the fatal attraction person. pattern? Was that the old fatal attraction? The fatal attraction. I, I guess, though, that the Glenn Close character there probably had a personality disorder okay. to my eyes. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking of uh, films perhaps like Play Misty for Me, oh, yeah. where I think Clint Eastwood again is a radio presenter and is a Kept disturbing... Kept me awake for days in my late adolescence. ...disturbing <laughs> pattern uh, emerging here, uh, and he becomes stalked by, by a listener. Mm. Uh, I like Play Misty for Me. I think we've discussed that on the mm. film before, mm. and, uh, you know, the, the theme... Uh, the theme music to Play Misty for me it contains the rather underused, I think, jazz glockenspiel. <laughs> <laughs> enduring love. Enduring love, indeed. What about enduring love? Well, the, the Ian McEwan book, the, um, the De Clarenbeau Syndrome. Oh, yes, I yeah. haven't read it, but De Clarenbeau Syndrome is the eponymous name for uh, erotomanic delusions. De Clarenbeau was a, a French psychiatrist who uh, first described the syndrome. But what, what did the book contain, Mixif? Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's an, uh, it is basically a fictionalised account of, uh, of this, uh, um, the development of erotomania in most unusual circumstances. Um, um, and uh, I'm, I'm not going to spoil it for those who might read it, but Ian McEwan does uh, wonderful 
wonderfully well when delving into the uh, the darkest aspects of the of human psyche and um the in, in fact the you, you you think that you've come to the end of the book and then there is a um uh basically a almost like a a, a master's thesis on on the Clarenbow, um and uh, it, it's a brilliant book. It does uh, some very thoughtful work uh, in McEwen. One could argue, uh, if, if you'll permit me to digress for a second, that even this, this whole concept of love, and I'd be, <clears throat> I'd be interested to hear the panel's views on this, but is love itself actually a delusional disorder? You know, we go through uh, life and they're seeking of a romantic partner with this idea that there is one person out there for us and he is or she is the one. And if that were true, if there were only one person in this world for us and there are seven billion individuals in the world we'd ha actually have a very limited chance of meeting uh, the one person so any thoughts on that it could be a delusion of disorder i mean it could be an acute brain syndrome a delirium it could be uh, i mean because we know that there are chemical changes that uh, that occur in the brain oxytocin release precisely oxytocin, yes. absolutely yeah. well like the old song says if that's the illness i don't need no cure ah <laughs> <laughs> someone who's been smitten give me the news <laughs> the, the psychiatric definition of love, of course, is the emotion created by the meeting of two people with complementary unmet dependency needs. <laughs> That's to, to put it clinically and rather unromantically, it, I think. It just won't fit on a Hallmark card. That, that's just not going to fit. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on with our discussion of stalkers, uh, the, the third type uh, can be best described perhaps as the incompetent suitor type of stalker so the incompetent suitor, suitor stalks in the context of loneliness or lust their initial motivation is not to establish necessarily a loving relationship but to get a date or a, or a short-term relationship uh, out of it and incompetent suitors usually will stalk only for brief periods but when they do persist their behaviour is usually maintained by the fact that they're either blind to or indifferent to the distress that their behaviour causes the victim. And sometimes this uh, insensitivity to the feedback that they're getting from their victim uh, can be associated with cognitive problems, cognitive limitations or limited social skills. Mm -hmm. So we see this occasionally in developmental disorders such as the autistic spectrum disorders mm -hmm. where people struggle to read the emotions or nonverbal cues of others. We occasionally see it in uh, intellectual disability as well. And if you've been watching Orange is the New Black, there's probably another character in there who is the incompetent suitor type of stalker. There's a character referred to as Crazy Eyes because she has crazy eyes, let's face it, who in, in the first season at least gets a... Uh, an erotic attachment to the the protagonist of the film you know it's an, an attractive young blonde woman that this woman fixates on and she makes a variety of ill-judged and very clumsy attempts to try and win her affection and get her to become her her prison wife and her backstory the backstory of crazy eyes reveals that she uh, you know certainly had learning difficulties but probably uh, is, is under par from the iq point of view the final type of stalker, and this is probably the type of stalker that uh, represents Lorna in Orange and the New Black, is the, the rejected stalker. So rejected stalking usually arises after the breakdown of a relationship. And it's usually a close relationship that's been going for some time, though in Lorna's case we learnt that uh, the, the extent of the relationship was only after one date. But we often see this uh, in people with uh, former sexual partners uh, having been rejected by them 
begin stalking behaviours. However, it has been described uh, amongst family members or close friends uh, for whom the friendship relationship breaks down as well. They can become targets of rejected stalkers. And the initial motivation of rejected stalkers is to try and attempt to reconcile the relationship, to try and bring the person back into the fold or alternatively to, uh, to exact revenge for their perceived rejection. And in many cases, rejected stalkers that can be quite ambivalent about their victim. Sometimes they appear to want the relationship back. At other times, they're clearly angry and want revenge on the victim. And in this sense, you might see Lorna's behaviour as being within that context. In some cases, the, the stalking behaviour becomes maintained because uh, it becomes a substitute, if you like, for the relationship <coughs> itself. It allows the stalker to continue to feel close to the victim in some way. And in other, in other cases, you see the behaviour maintained because it allows the stalker to salvage their damaged self-esteem and to come to feel better about themselves in some way, perhaps as having a degree of control over the person despite their rejection of them. Makes it... It's one of those conditions where the greatest level of distress is often not in the person, not in the, in the individual who's demonstrating the condition, but in the victim thereof. So that the, 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 the level of psychiatric morbidity in those who are the victims of stalking can be profound. Life totally changed. Um, uh, how it, it, does it warrant some sort of more um, a, a lateral thinking approach to the management of the condition. Well, I guess you've got two groups, haven't you? You've got the, the groups that you can conceptualise as clinical groups, those where the stalking behaviour is driven by A, paranoia, or B, the erotic delusions, you know, the mistaken belief that, uh, you know, somebody is actually in love with you and they're not allowed to declare their love in return because of their exalted position and so forth. So excuses are made for public displays of affection not being returned. I guess in cl clinical samples, the first problem that stands in the way of addressing the issue is identification of the patient you know people who suffer from these delusional beliefs are not going to come along to the offices of you or i or anabolics and suggest that they need treatment unfortunately they usually only come to clinical attention where there has been a forensic involvement or of some sort and they've been referred for usually involuntarily uh, psychiatric evaluation because both types of stalking, particularly the erotomanic stalking, it occurs in the context of this concept of a delusional disorder where everything else in their life is not influenced by, by psychosis, but there's one belief that it's not a bizarre belief, but it's a fixed belief and it drives behaviour. It's actually very difficult to adequately treat cases of delusional disorder. It's uh, apparently much harder than... Uh, the more traditional uh, psychotic illnesses such as, such as schizophrenia to get adequate symptom control. So there's a difficulty identifying the patient, there's then a difficulty uh, in the treatment that's prescribed actually working to sufficient effect, though obviously that's the goal. The, uh, the persecutory uh, or revenge-seeking stalker who's beliefs are often part of a, of a broader schizophrenic illness. There's perhaps more scope to clinically intervene and address those cases. But the remaining three types of stalker, you know, the incompetent suitor and, and so forth, the intimacy-seeking stalker, you know, they're not suffering from a clinical condition. If, if anything, this is more a psychological uh, problem that they have rather than a psychiatric problem, and it's contingent upon poor understanding or, refu or a refu refusal to accept the reality of the situation. 
situation. So although technically you could try and address those mistaken beliefs through various forms of psychotherapy, you don't often see them coming to treatment without there having been a police or a forensic involvement beforehand. SK, one of the things that I was uh, taught was that one thing, two things that all humans wanted as they grew up was to be known and to matter. You have to be some, for someone to know us and for, some, for us to matter to somebody. I always think some of these guys have lost something in their development in those in that area. This is something that I don't. I have to matter to somebody. I have to be known by somebody. And this is almost like it's gone off the. They haven't been able to find that answer to those questions in in their relationships, and they're and they're seeking some sort of. Does that, does that ring a bell in some of these guys? Look, it does now that you mention it, but I've actually never heard of uh, those two things as being crucially important. I know if you look at traditional uh, Freudian uh, views of what's important in life, Freud said that it was work and love that give life meaning, and you can certainly draw love into this equation. Mm-hmm. But to be known and to matter, to me, uh, comes across as a very uh, Generation Y thing, where, you know, you ask young people nowadays what they want to be when they grow up, and the answer mm-hmm. is, you know, to be famous, in much the way as Kim Kardashian might be famous, you know, to be famous through a reality show. So to be known and to matter seem to be relatively modern phenomena when people are unsure of their place. See, I, I would I would dispute that I would say to be known and to matter are indispensable parts of being loved mm. and loving. Mm. Uh, but known to who and to matter to, to some- what extent? To, to be known to by the world no. and to matter well, to what extent? Somebody understands me and loves me. And well, that, yeah, that, yeah. I mean, to be known by the world is, is probably a distortion of love. We that's, should, we that's should, narcissism. We should, yeah. we should uh, have this as a topic next time we meet because yeah. it's a fascinating yeah. thing to delve into. And we've come to the end of that show. SK, that was brilliant. I must go and perhaps I'll test the water with one or two of the first um, first shows and see see where I fall on the on the spectrum of this <laughs> interesting show. <laughs> Thank. I'm going to finish up now because the Einstein guys are over there getting uh, extremely excited about their brilliant show that's coming on next. I'm going to say thank you so much to Tanya Seri for your brilliant talk about literacy and language and to Penny Hill. Good luck with Support Don't Punish Day. And uh, yes, well, you go uh, Yeah, thank you. Um, I just also wanted to kind of shout out if there's any university students listening, um, definitely try and get involved uh, if you're interested in drug policy and drug policy reform and harm reduction. And they should go um, to what website, Pen? Uh, our website, so ssdp.org.au. And you can find us on Facebook and Twitter and things. Just, yeah, look it up. Brilliant. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank and thanks you. for coming in. Hope, well, we'll hear more about things, how things are going down the track, I hope. Thanks. Thank you to Ken for keeping us on air, as usual, brilliantly. And we'll see you next week. This is Dr. Anna Whenever Mons, I come home after a hard day's work, I love to listen to the sounds of Triple R. 102.7. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.